just let you know. Anyway, uh, so when I was um, 16, I think 15, 16 years old, uh, we were living in a city that didn't have a vineyard. You know, my family, I grew up in the vineyard movement, and we were in the city that had um, uh, just a local charismatic Pentecostal church that we started going to, and we were pretty involved in it. And it's, the, it's actually the church where I became really good friends with the pastor. It was the first time I was probably 16 when he first started talking to me, and um, and we both shared a love for fishing. So he would take me fishing, and uh, when I was, I think I was about 17 and a half or so, and I was going into my senior year, he took me out fishing. We were out on the lake, and he said, hey, have you ever thought about being a pastor? And I, like, obviously at the time laughed at him because I thought it was the stupidest idea I'd ever heard. Um, but he said, you know, I know that you really, really like theology and you love the Bible. It might be worth it to consider going to, to university to study theology. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll, I'm open to that. And I ended up doing an internship there and was really close to them. And after, um, after I moved away, I, I was living in the Midwest at the time, and I moved um, away, what happened to the church is that it just completely imploded. It was really sad. And um, all these things that had kind of happened while I was there, there were some things that just didn't add up. But I kind of, I think because of the relationship I had with him, I just kind of overlooked them. But what I found out was that there were tons of people that were hurt, and then there was a bunch of scandals and moral failures that happened. So when I returned, when I was like 19, the church had gone from like 400 people down to like 30, 30-something people. And it was really, really sad, and I knew my part of the story, and so that just fed into, into my experience with church, where I was kind of like, oh yeah, see, they're all hypocrites. All those pastors out there are just moral, you know, moral failures left and right, and I had this really bad attitude about it. And, and then, you know, the Lord worked over the next nearly seven years to, you know, I kept on studying theology and, and was moving into ministry, and then I ended up, started pastoring, and and it was interesting because one day out of the blue, that pastor, his name was Jason, Jason contacted me. And he just said, hey, I, I saw on social media that you're, you're now a pastor and it looks just like you're doing really well. And I just want to let you know I'm proud of you. And, and it really hit me a little bit because I hadn't quite processed all the emotions that were connected to that. And uh, anyway, he and I started talking. And then it, like over the course of our conversations, I found out that he had basically what had happened is his wife had had um, an affair with like everybody on the music team and had, you know, they, she had been embezzling money and all this really terrible stuff. And then when it all came out, she divorced him. And in the denomination we were a part of, he instantaneously, because of that, lost his ordination and he was no longer ordained. And so he wasn't able to be a pastor anymore. Just like, could you imagine, you know, having that happen? And so we started talking more and we, our friendship kind of sparked up again. And and meanwhile, all of my friends from like my church, the church community that I've been a part of, they were all so hurt and offended and had all these things that had happened to them that they were like still holding on to that. In fact, Don and I would run into friends from my high school church experience and that's all they would talk about. It still like just controlled all of their, their, their opinions about church and, and God. So, so Jason and I start talking though and I find out that because he can't be a pastor at that time, at that time he couldn't, he felt like the Lord asked him to memorize the book of Proverbs. Yeah, he memorized the whole book of Proverbs, and he started doing these presentations at church. He actually grew his hair out really long, okay? And he would wear a robe, and he would come and do a presentation 
where he would be Solomon and just quote verbatim sections from Proverbs, just giving people an experience of the wisdom that's contained in that. Now, we don't have him here this morning, okay? But in, in, just in your mind's eye, just think about how, how that would be. And so he did that. And then what's really cool is he ended up coming back. We had him speak at our church, and he was able to have a meeting. I organized this meeting with all these former friends, and we all got together and prayed together, and he apologized for things, and there was reconciliation, and it was like one of the most beautiful things that I've ever seen. But when he was speaking one uh, one particular um, service, I, I just remember him. He was what he what he did is he memorized the book of Proverbs, chapter one all the way to thirty one, but then he also he took every single verse on specific topics and put them in themes and memorized them by themes. So he could do a whole entire presentation on wisdom, on finances, on on different on truth, on on all these different aspects. And and so I've been thinking about that because I was so struck by the wisdom talk because one of the things that we see in in proverbs is this emphasis on wisdom and and so if you're if you're if you weren't with us last week we started a new sermon series that we're calling virtues and we're and what we're doing is we're taking the book of proverbs and we're thematically breaking it up into three three virtues three themes three characteristics we're looking at wisdom courage and kindness and this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look a little bit into this first one. Last week, we introduced the sermon series. We kind of talked about, about Proverbs as a book. And today, we're going to look at the theme of wisdom. And we're going to consider what Proverbs has to tell us um, about wisdom. And then we're going to talk about Jesus. The first, what I want to do this morning is I want to define wisdom for us. You know, because I think it's a word that maybe we use all the time, but we don't really maybe understand the biblical background for it. And so I just want to give you a really brief definition here. So wisdom, the word wisdom, it comes from the Old Testament Hebrew word and the New Testament Greek word. And we don't need to use those words to sound smart, but there's certain words that are translated that way. And, and it has a wide variety of meanings covering both physical skill and intellectual wisdom. It can be translated as wisdom, aptitude, experience, good sense, skill. And this is, I think, important. Wisdom denotes the capacity to not only understand something, but also to act accordingly. You all get that? It is the latter that separates wisdom from knowledge. And so what we're pursuing is not just information. We're wanting to have information that actually compels us to live our lives differently. Now, I think it's better to understand wisdom in Proverbs, um, in order to do that, I should say. What I want to do today is actually read from Proverbs. And what I've done is I've taken the liberty this week is to compile all the different verses that cover wisdom, and I put it into one reading for us to get an idea of what, what the book of Proverbs says about, about wisdom. And what I've done is I've skipped out verses that are restated. So just for a minute here, close your eyes if it's helpful. And I'm just going to read this. If you want to read along, you can do that too. But this is what, what we read in the book of Proverbs from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 30. These are the, the words that we encounter from Solomon. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Wisdom shouts in the streets. She cries out in the public square. Tune your ears to wisdom and concentrate on understanding. For the Lord grants wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. 
For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will fill you with joy. Wisdom will save you from evil people, from those whose words are twisted. Wisdom will save you from the immoral woman, from the seductive words of the promiscuous woman. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Joyful is the person who finds wisdom, the one who gains understanding. For wisdom is more profitable than silver, and her wages are better than gold. Wisdom is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. She offers you long life in her right hand and riches and honor in her left. She will guide you down delightful paths. All her ways are satisfying. Wisdom is a tree of life to those who embrace her. Happy are those who hold her tightly. By wisdom, the Lord founded the earth. By understanding, he created the heavens. Don't turn your back on wisdom, for she will protect you. Love her, and she will guard you. Getting wisdom is the wisest thing you can do. And whatever else you do, develop good judgment. If you prize wisdom, she will make you great. Embrace her, and she will honor you. Wisdom will multiply your days and add years to your life. If you become wise, you will be the one to benefit. If you scorn wisdom, you will be the one to suffer. Pride leads to disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Sensible people keep their eyes glued on wisdom, but a fool's eyes wander to the ends of the earth. In the same way, wisdom is sweet to your soul. If you find it, you will have a bright future and your hopes will not be cut short. To discipline a child produces wisdom, but a mother is disgraced by an undisciplined child. And that's what the book of Proverbs has to say about, about wisdom. Now, you know, it's interesting. So the, the writer, the primary author of Proverbs is a man by the name of Solomon, and he was one of the kings of Israel. His father was David. And so when Solomon becomes king, it's a really beautiful story in the Old Testament. Basically, God says, hey, you can ask me of anything. This is your chance. What do you want? And, you know, I've thought about that. Like, if God told you you can have anything, what are some of the things that we would come up with? And I know some of you are going to be super spiritual right now, and you're going to say, oh, I just want to feel God's love or something like that. But some of us would be honest and be like, millions or like cryptocurrency or, you know, bigger house or new car or all those things. And it's interesting because Solomon could have said that. But what Solomon does is he asks the Lord for wisdom and knowledge. And God gives it to him. And, and you know, what's beautiful, I think, just to build on that, is that James, James 1 promises the same thing. What James writes is he says, if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who will give it generously to us. And so Solomon, Solomon says, I want wisdom. And then he's given wisdom. And throughout uh, the, the history of Israel that covers Solomon's reign, we see example after example of, uh, of, of Solomon just using wisdom in the way that he interacts with people, the decisions that he makes, the way that he is able to navigate conflicts between two mothers, one being a fake mother. Um, you might know the story where they're both saying, this child's mine. He knows how to navigate that situation. So there's all these different, different reasons why I think Solomon's a good person to look to when we talk about wisdom, and this is one of them. But what's interesting in Proverbs too, if you've been reading along, every day we're reading a chapter of Proverbs, and I, I talked to a few people uh, at our men's breakfast, and everybody acknowledged that they were like, yeah, I'm going to read a chapter of Proverbs every single day, and they did so good until the second day of June. 
They're, they're like, I killed it day one, and then day two. But we're, but we're reading it. And so have any of you been following along? Some of you have, right? And so in chapter 8, if you remember when we got to, to the 8th of June, we read chapter 8. And chapter 8 has this approach to, to wisdom through the eyes of personification where it's lady wisdom. And in chapter 8, we have wisdom personified and described as lady wisdom. And, and it reminds me of this, this time I was in Toronto. Um, I was visiting a friend who's a, who's a professor and a theologian and a rapper. And uh, we were hanging out and maybe doing the raps and traveling all over Toronto. As we were walking downtown, there were these statues of, of women overlooking the city. And my friend Cyril's uh, wife is a photographer. And when we got back to their apartment, I saw these pictures of these, of these statues. And she had, she had titled these photos Lady Wisdom. And it was interesting because all over Toronto, you'd see these, these really, really high up, these statues of women overlooking the city. And it was really apt fitting to call them, as, call them Lady Wisdom because I think in many ways, that's kind of what Proverbs is doing is, is how wisdom overlooks us. And, and yet at the same time, what struck me as fascinating is that all along Toronto, all over the place, people were just walking around and they were completely oblivious to these statues because they're just there. And, and so Proverbs has this picture, though, of wisdom defined as, as a, a woman who is there to, to, to um, nurture her children. And so every single day, I think we need to place a higher value on wisdom. And, and what I mean by that is we have to place a higher value on seeking God's wisdom because every one of us in this room find ourselves, ourselves in unique situations that require wisdom. And the easiest one to explain would be relationships, right? How many of you need wisdom when it comes to your marriage? Husbands, don't raise your hand. Wives, you're allowed to. Okay. How many of you would agree that you need wisdom in parenting? Right? That's the one where like, Lord, help me. Right? Or, or just, you know, in the, the, the different decisions we have to navigate with employment or any decision making, you know, my example I used with our men's group yesterday was that for me, one of the places that I, I needed wisdom was when we started sensing God calling us to transition from the church we had pastored for 12 years to move and to come here. It was like we needed wisdom because that was a really big decision to sell our house, to sell everything we, we knew and to, to leave the place that we had raised all of our kids and we were invested in and to pack up and move to California, because outside of California, everybody thinks you're crazy, just so you know, okay? And I was like, oh, we're going to move to California and, you know, uprooting our family and all of those different different things. And we need wisdom through that process, right? And, and so we need wisdom. And, and here's what I think is really beautiful, though, is that when we look at Scripture, we discover that the Bible is crystal clear that God's wisdom is vastly different than human wisdom. Paul lays this out in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he writes these words. He says, So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish, since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. 
So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Right? And, and that's the truth is that when you, when you look at the story of the cross, the idea that God was crucified, it does seem foolish. It seems crazy. Like, why would God need to be crucified? It doesn't add up in our natural minds. But when we study the story of redemption and the Holy Spirit awakens our hearts to the truth of Scripture, we begin to see the wisdom of God in the way that He provides salvation through His own death. And that's how Paul lays this out here. But what he's doing here is he's, he's essentially connecting the dots for us. So in the Old Testament and Proverbs, we're told to pursue wisdom. We're told that God gives wisdom. We're told that wisdom is, is more to be desired than, than jewels. And, and, and we have Paul here saying, listen, Jesus' death on the cross is an example of God's wisdom. And I want to take that one step further and say that Jesus is the ultimate personification of wisdom. Like if we're wondering who is the, the wisest human to ever have walked the face of the earth, I think it's okay to say that number two is Solomon. Okay? Number two is Solomon. Pretty wise dude. But when it comes to the ultimate example of wisdom, we have to look to Jesus. We have to look to Jesus. So Paul lays this out, obviously, in 1 Corinthians um, about his his death on the cross and Jesus' uh, redemption. But I want to just share with you really quickly, really quickly, a couple examples of Jesus using wisdom. And, and I like it when Jesus uses the type of wisdom that, that highlights the nature of the kingdom of God in the foolishness of human beings. And so in Matthew 22, we have three different scenarios. And so you have to understand at this point in time in Matthew 22, what has been happening is Jesus has been, been preaching all over and he's a powerful speaker. In fact, we're told numerous times that the crowds hear Jesus and they recognize that he is one who speaks with authority. And they can discern the difference between Jesus' preaching and all the people with all the degrees that were leading the religious institutions of the day. And so he's gathering up crowds, and I mean, literally thousands of people are falling in love with Jesus, and they're following him. He has his 12 disciples, but we also read in the Gospel of Luke that there's many women and other men who are also a part of his, his community, and they're just following him around the, around the ancient land of Israel. And, and so the religious leaders, as you can imagine, they're losing their power and influence, and so how do you think that makes them? They're pretty upset at Jesus, right? They don't like that, that Jesus is, is winning the hearts and minds of all the normal everyday people. And so they're always trying to stump Jesus. They're always trying to trick Jesus. And what they often do is they will, they will be standing there as Jesus is speaking. And when it comes to the Q&A time, they raise up their hand and they say, hey, Jesus, what about this? And every question that they ask is always designed to make Jesus look like a fool. And so there's an example in, in Matthew 22. The first example is in verses 15 through 22, where, where the, the, the religious leaders at the time, they're trying to catch Jesus in, in, a, 
in a moment where they can like have him removed. And so they're like, should we pay taxes? Now, I think if we did a poll in here and said, would you like to pay taxes? Most of us would say, absolutely not, right? Like, please, do we have to pay this many taxes? Our roads aren't even fixed, right? Come on. So the same thing's happening. So the Pharisees are like, so Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And you have to understand, in this day, you think our tax codes are bad? They were way worse in the ancient world. Because not only did you have a high tax rate to Caesar, you also had people who were collecting the taxes skimming the top, right? And so we have this question. And Jesus says, let me see one of those coins. He looks at the coin, and it had a picture of guess who? Caesar. And what does he say? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and give God what God is due. And all the Pharisees are like, dang, we couldn't get him, right? And then right, right away, right the next passage of Scripture in Matthew 22, 23 through 33, we have another example where they're like, hey, Jesus, we've got a question for you. So let's say a person is married and then that person dies and then the lady marries another person and, or the, the husband marries another and there ends up being like seven marriages and this person's been married to seven different people. Who will they be married to in heaven? And to me, that's pretty easy. It's a good question, but it's pretty easy. I love Jesus' answer. He's like, you silly, silly people. There are no, there's no marriage in heaven. And every married person said, amen. Yes. Right? It's like, it's, it's hilarious because they're trying to catch him. And, and he's saying, he's saying, no, listen, you don't even understand the resurrection. You don't, you don't understand. You haven't even been reading the scriptures about resurrection. And he's able to foil him again. And there, again, the Pharisees are like, oh, how are we going to get him? How are we going to get him? And then my favorite of all of them, in Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40, the Pharisees, I'm sure this whole time, they're conspiring and they're like, okay, we couldn't get them on the tax codes. We couldn't get them on marriage. I got one. Because you have to understand in the, in the Jewish traditions of the day, there were Pharisees and there were Sadducees. And there were two other groups that we don't really hear a lot. There was a group called the Essenes who basically had said, we're out of here. This society is crooked. We're going to go move out to the desert and we're going to hang out there. And then there was a group of people called Zealots. And the zealots were like, we are going to overthrow the Roman government by force. Okay, So really, Jesus is talking, uh, and there's Pharisees and Sadducees and religious law, law keepers, and they all have their own private understanding of Scripture, and they all have their own opinion on what's the most important law. Because there's 613 laws in the Old Testament, and they say, hey, Jesus, I've got a question for you. Which commandment is the greatest commandment? Which one? Because in their mind, they're thinking, whichever one he picks is going to exclude 612 other ones that some other people think is really important, and then we're going to have him. He's going to lose his influence among the people. And Jesus, in all of his wisdom, he says, well, let me tell you what the greatest commandment is. He says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind. And then he says in the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbors as yourself. He says that all the laws rest on these. Mic drop moment, <laughs> right? The Pharisees are like, ah, he's too smart. We can't get him. And that's, that's the example that we have is we have one. Our, 
our Lord and Savior is, again, the wisest of all wisdom. He, he personifies wisdom in the way that he engages with human beings. We see it all over the place. I mean, one thing that I love about Jesus as an aside, I love that Jesus is constantly traveling and he's always interrupted and he sees every single interruption as an opportunity for an inbreaking of the kingdom to bring the love and truth of God to people's lives. He, he just responds brilliantly with wisdom in every single, every single story we read in the Gospels. I mean, they're just full all over the place. So I want to end with this really quickly. Uh, two practical ways to pursue wisdom. Because I, I, what I'm saying and what we're kind of laying out over the course of this sermon series is there's these virtues that have, have been forgotten, have been maybe overlooked. And, and the three that we're, we're leaning into are wisdom, courage, and kindness. And today we're looking at wisdom. And I hope that we as a community will value wisdom. Because I'm telling you right now, as the aliens come, we're going to need wisdom. Okay? We're going to need it. But seriously, I couldn't help it. It was there. I went for it. But seriously, in the world that we live in, right, navigating the challenges culturally, we have to have wisdom. We need wisdom. We need God's wisdom. And so this is, these are two practical ways for us to, I think, pursue wisdom as a community. The number one way is this. We need to learn the ways of Jesus. Back in the, in the 90s, there were these little WWJD bracelets. How many of you had one on? Just tell the truth. Okay, some of you are lying, I know, because you're embarrassed by it. I had one too, okay? But we used to always say, what would Jesus do? Well, you want to know how you know what Jesus would do? You read Scripture, right? There's this whole thing called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we can learn the ways of Jesus there. So reading Scripture, I think committing to a local church to be in community matters. I think prayer matters. Those are the practices that help shape us. So you want to become full of godly wisdom? Enter into the ways of Jesus. And the second way is this. I think we have to commit to lifelong learning. We have to commit to that. Like wisdom comes through experience too, right? There's a difference between knowing something and then having raised 10 kids, right? You know, I mean, like I remember when, when I... When we first had our kid, our first daughter, Alana, and after a year, I was like, I got this down. Like, I'm ready to train anybody on parenting. I would like to set up parenting classes, you know. And then it's like, as you're, as you're going through it, you just realize constantly you don't know anything, right? And it's like, Don and I have been married for 22, 3, more, 22, 20, we don't even know. And we had a meeting recently with a therapist who told us that we were, we've been married longer than everybody she sees. And I was like, oh, it's not that long. But we need, we need wisdom, and that's on, in addition. So that's experience, and if it comes from God, it helps us even more so, right? So commit to lifelong learning, and that really has to do with humility. Humility is, is kind of the key to, I think, experiencing, experiencing wisdom. Let's stand up together.